And now Joab is going to use David on behalf of Absalom. Now Joab, if you don't remember this particular fun guy, was himself, is himself a murderer. Back in uh, chapter 3, he murdered Abner by a, a short conspiracy. So Joab and David are in charge of the land, and they are both, them, both of them murderers. Now, the dithering of David goes all the way back to that. What did David do about that? Right? Righteous Abner was murdered. David, he did nothing. Now, right, David is lounging about on the roof when the rest of the men are out fighting a war, taking a siesta in the middle of the day when he has a kingdom to run, conspiring against uh, Uriah and his wife. And now, right, what's descended upon him is nothing but ditheringness. (laughs) It's dithering David. He is a mere pawn. Now, what Joab does, he enters into a conspiracy now, and his motives are a little fuzzy. This whole section is a little fuzzy. And that's what actually one in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is very hard to understand. And part of what, what, what they're doing is they want you to, it's hard to understand what is motivating people here. What's motivating David? What's motivating Joab? What is Absalom up to? It's confusion because confusion has descended upon them because of their complacency, because of their disobedience. Now, Joab goes and gets this wise woman. And to be clear, this is actually a title. Okay? There's nothing particularly wise about her. She's simply cunning. And we've seen that there's cunning people have already entered into the story here. Remember Amnon's um, cousin who helped him conspire against Tamar, who then also saw things that David couldn't see when Absalom murdered Amnon. We have these characters who come in who are considered wise, but it's not wise in, in the sense of Proverbs. <laughs> it's, it's cunning in the sense of the serpent. So Joab hires this woman. Her, her job is rhetoric. Her job is um, to appeal to people and using theatrics. She has no problem dressing up and pretending to be exactly what Joab asked her to be because that's actually her job. Um, and and you can, there's these several of these women throughout First and Second Samuel, and they're interesting characters all by themselves. So Joab hires this woman. She's no Abigail. She's no Lady Wisdom. She's no prophet like Nathan. Remember, Nathan came to, to open David's eyes by bringing a word from the Lord. And, and, and some people want to make a comparison here, but it, it's nothing, the, the comparisons fall, fall short. She is no prophet. She is not sent by God. And though she does get David to see his circumstances differently, she, what, what, at the end, he's not on his knees writing Psalm 51. In the end, he's, right, he changes one form of dithering for another form of dithering. He's surrounded by people now who are just inspiring him and causing him and leading him further, further, further into chaos and confusion. Now, in this story, David is manipulative, or he's manipulated into making a decision. We see that he's no longer the driving force behind the story. He's no longer a man of action. He's no longer on the forefront of, right? He's not the spear point now driving the story, driving the wars, driving the politics. He's a rube. He's a tool in the hands of murderers and rapists and intriguers. He's become what we call a useful idiot. Now, we recognize these characters. Our government is full of them. Useful idiots abound. And they are, as, as the title describes, very useful. Because if you have a man like David who has all the authority, and you can steer him this way and that to, so you can satisfy your lusts, you can satisfy your lust for murder, your lust for rape, your lust for intrigue, he's a, an extraordinarily useful idiot. Now, he does not reconcile with his son in the end. There's no reconciliation here. There's no ministry of reconciliation. This is not a a foreshadowing of Jesus. Absalom remains in limbo at the end of this. He's in limbo, and he's outside of the land, and then he enters the land, and he's still in limbo. This is a very confusing section. What is going on? uh, David doesn't provide justice for Amnon's murder, just like he didn't provide justice for Amnon's rape. Right? I, I can't say that he is dithering his way all the way through this. Now, a sword has descended upon his house. And one of the questions is, has he resigned himself to that fact? He said, you know what? The sword, God said the sword's coming. So what, what we're going to do is just let it come. He's God. He knows. I don't know. He's wiser than I am. He's righteous. And, and what I'm wondering is, where is David, the David who when he was told his son was going to die, spent all night on his face. Spent, right? And what was he doing? Crying out to God. 
going without food, going without water, seeking the face of the Lord. You said you're going to do that, but maybe you will turn your hand away. Where is that David? Because I actually think, like a Greek tragedy here, the fact that he says, you know, oh well, we can't do anything about it, is actually the reason how it comes about. He's sitting there passively in the middle, and his passivity is actually how the sword enters into his household and begins to destroy everything. If you're right, if you find yourself in circumstances, if you go home and you say, you know what, Mike was right, we are a a nation of ditherers. We are just these people who are neither warm, we're neither cold, we're neither in, we're neither out. If you go home and you find yourself in that position, what you need to do is go back and read what David did when he was told his son was going to die. Get on your face. Maybe you can turn the sword away from the house, from from your house, from from America, the judgment that we are under. Maybe we can turn God's hand. We don't have to simply resign ourselves to it. Right, I've, I, and, and right now, the rise of Christian nationalism, the rise of the culture wars, some people are like, yeah, give it to America. This is what we deserve. And I'm like, are you, like are you, right? Yeah, bring persecution to the church. It cleanses it. And you're like, are you out of your mind? Right? I mean, we can't, we can't do that. We could just be ditherers and let, let the world have its way with us. But is, is that really what we want? It, right? People who are void of his, any sense of history say these kind of stupid things. At the heart and soul of this story today is, is, is passivity, is absolute complacence, is dithering. And, and that is the sin that we need to see in ourselves and see in one another and see all around us because we have become a nation of ditherers, a, a church of ditherers. Now, I'm, before I read the text, I'm just going to say there's to, to, to clarify the ambiguity part, there's ambiguity from start to finish here. Second Samuel 13, it ended with this verse. It says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. And, and what we are not certain as to what that means. Does he long to go out there because he wants to kill him? Does he long to go out there because he misses him? Does he long to go out there because he has a sharp word for him? He longs for him, but the nature of the longing is not clear. We're not really sure what David wants to do because David is not sure what he wants to do. And so what does he do? Nothing. And, and chapter 14 starts the same way. It, it, it says, uh, the Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. It's just as confusing. What does that mean? His heart is going out to him because why? He wants to slay him? He wants to bring him back? Fog has descended. Soak. <laughs> From the forest fire of their lusts has come upon the land, and nobody can see straight. It's not clear what their motivations are. It's not clear what they're going to do. And, and, and in the absence of right, good men doing good things, bad men will do bad things. It, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. In the absence of good men doing good things, bad men will do bad things. Right? The West dithered, and now Putin is running amok. The West dithers... Right? America dithers away, and now what do we have? The most dithering president I have ever seen in the history of the world. Right? He stands up there, and you have no idea what he's saying. And you're like, behold, America, yourself. Right? That's the king you deserve. You deserve Putin. You dithered, and look what happened. You dithered, and you got Biden. Congratulations. Now, we can either recognize in this a call to what? Repentance and confession, and, and somebody, right? Good men to stand up and do good things. Because the bad men are standing and they are doing bad things. And waiting for the, for the government to do something, just like COVID, right? Well, if we just, right, the government will save us. Just put the mask on. It's very confusing out there. I don't know what's going on, so I'm just going to stay home. That's what they wanted me to do anyway. But what happened during COVID? Good men doing good things did what? They, 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 gave, they planted banners for people to rally around. Right, Because the churches that fought it out and, and the churches that rose up and did something are the churches that are thriving. The churches that did nothing, that dithered or argued themselves right, in, into complete passivity to the government, those churches, it's even a delayed thing now. There were churches that appeared like they were doing fine and they're falling apart two years later because the dithering, everybody noticed the dithering. The people in the pews it was very obvious what was happening. And what was happening was a bunch of ditherers were in charge. But everywhere good men stood up to do good things, people rally to it. They rally to it. Women rally to good men who do good things. 
good men who do good things are, are the ones who are in pulpits, right, preaching to larger and larger crowds, good men doing good things in the community, up to and including losing their jobs over their principles, are the ones that we give our money to and our support to, and they are the ones we are behind. It is a time for good men to stand up and do good things. And in the absence of that, we can see the alternative. We can see the alternative. Now, I'm going to read this story. It's long, but I'm going to get through it, and then I'll explain a few elements of it. And then what we will do is go return to our own hearts at the end and consider how we may ourselves be complacent ditherers. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14 and hear the word of the Lord. Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, and she fell on her face to the ground, and paid homage, and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and no one struck the, or, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench the coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now then the king said to the woman, Go, go to your house. And I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, chat, uh, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground, and boom, he laid a trap for himself. Then the woman said, Please, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And the servant thought, the word of, the, of my lord, the king, will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. No, oh no, he's not. The Lord your God be with you, she says. Now then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. Oh, thank you. Now the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He has not come into my presence. Uh, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, I'm going to continue, but we're going to skip this part about how beautiful Absalom is and his magnificent hair. We're going to come back to that next week because talk about distracting in the middle of all this other stuff. It's super distracting, but it's important, so we'll come back to it. So we're going to go down to verse 28. 
says, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him, and he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have you have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Woo! Woo! <laughs> there is a lot going on there, let me tell you. Now, the impasse, which left Absalom, now seemingly the heir, in exile, could not be permitted to continue indefinitely. The king yet did nothing, right? And in the chronology of 2 Samuel, you have to actually sit down and puzzle out. Who is the heir now? Amnon is dead. Absalom is far away. Who's the heir? Well, if you, if you, if, if, if you sit down and you start to work out how old people are and what's been going on and how long from this to that, you actually find out that this portion comes very late in the rule of David. And he has already said that Solomon is going to be king. So if Solomon is going to be king, why does Joab want Absalom back? Right? There is a lot of, there's a lot that is not told us as we go here. You actually have to really sit down and figure it out. And, and, and I think that's, part, that's a character in the story. The confusion is itself a character. Because the people in the story are confused. They're thrown into chaos. They're thrown into confusion because of, the, because of David's disobedience to the word of God. The good man ceased doing good and himself became evil. And now bad men are doing bad things. And when that happens, we read in Romans 1, when we cease to thank God, when we cease to honor God as God, what happens? Darkness descends. Confusion. Chaos. Joab is, is just as confused a character as anybody. He, you know, he doesn't support Absalom when Absalom rises up against the king. He himself is actually the one who puts Absalom to death. But we see later on in the story, we're going to watch in, in 2 Samuel 20, he tries to play the kingmaker. There's a, there's a rebellion going on, and David has, is losing the throne yet again because he deserves to, and, and it's Joab who comes and sets him back on it. So you see that like, he, he cannot stay out of the game, right? He's like that congressman who's in there for 40 or 50 years, and you're like, oh, let's go back and look at every bad decision America's made for 50 years, and lo and behold, there your stupid name is voting yes. That's what it's like. It's what he's like. He's like a career politician who can't stay out of it. Later, and, and, and this is actually very helpful to us, in 1 Kings, he is conspiring against Solomon. And, and, I, and I think what that points to is the fact that here, we, it's obvious that Solomon is going to be the heir because Amnon and Absalom are dirtbags. And, and I don't think that Joab likes Solomon. Well, why doesn't he like Solomon? Well, if you read the Proverbs, we see why. Because Solomon is wise, and Solomon speaks to God. And what, who is Joab? Joab is a murderer. Joab is a conspirer. Joab is a man of blood. Joab is not a good guy. And I think he, he would rather have Absalom, even though he doesn't really like him either, because you know what he really doesn't like is a, he doesn't want a good man to be king. And, and he is a very complicated character, Joab. He's very useful to the king. He's very useful to Solomon. He's useful to a lot of people in Israel. But he's not the guy that you really want in charge. And this is what happens. Usefulness does not mean that we should put people in charge of things. Because people want to be, because people can, does not actually mean they should. Because character matters, right? You turn to the New Testament, and what does Paul say? Go find somebody who's willing and able and put them in charge of the church. Oh, no. Okay? Oh, no. It says, right, find a guy who leads his own household well, who's honest and upright and above reproach, and that's the person that you want to put in charge. And Joab, I think, doesn't like Solomon because bad men are in charge of Israel, and bad men don't like good men. And Solomon, at least at the beginning, at least when the transition occurs and in the first portion, is actually a good guy. And I think that's why Joab doesn't want him. And so his real politicking, though, backfires on him, as it often does. And Absalom comes back and not only destroys Joab's field, which is just hilarious, 
Take that, Joab. You want to be an intriguer? How's the barley treating you? Oh, it's all gone. It's up in smoke. Later on, Absalom is going to continue to conspire against the king, and Joab is going to have to go out and fight him. And, I'm, and I'm, I often think, him, uh, think of him in his course thinking, you know, why did I ever get involved in this? Why did I ever get involved in this nonsense? I wouldn't have to go out and kill this guy if I didn't help bring him back. But you know why he's a bad guy? Because that doesn't prevent him from trying it again and again. He's not a good man. He's not the kind of man you want in charge of anything. Now, Absalom, I believe, is like Macbeth. Macbeth was standing there when the king of Scotland designated Malcolm as the heir of all things. And this is what, this is what Macbeth said in response to it. He says, a step on which I must fall down or else overleap, for in my way it lies. Okay, so Solomon, somebody's got to do something about Solomon. Solomon is in the way. We don't want Solomon. And so Joab goes and gets Absalom back. And, but what happens here is that there is, right, he, he, he's underestimated the ditheringness of David. He, what is he expecting? That David's going to bring him back and either put him to death or hug him and say, welcome back to the table, son. Take your place that you used to sit at, and all is well in the land. Yay! No, he's got dithering David. So what does David do? Well, David doesn't really say, yeah, that's good, it's bad, he can come back, but he can't come back. And then finally, he, 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 right, it requires Joab getting his field burned down in order for them to, to, to proceed to the next level. But it's like the most I don't, benign description of reconciliation I've ever heard. Right? Absalom, who hates his father, hates his own family members, comes in and lays on his face, and David kisses him. And I, imag- I just imagine quiet. Nobody says anything. They go through this ceremony. Then they depart. Joab's intrigues do not work out for him. Now, the woman that he gets is also very interesting. He goes and finds this woman who's called a wise woman. She's only referred to as a wise woman uh, once. After that, she's referred to the uh, Tekoa, Tekoaite woman or the woman. So this, this phrase, wise woman, is only used once. And, and I think it's, it's indi- it indicates that he went and he found this professional, right? Like, you know, um, say you're, you're doing a, you want to pass a bill in Congress. Okay, so the, the DNC all gets together and they're like, all right, so what we need to do is hire somebody who's a little theatrical and we'll put them on CNN. And what they'll do is they'll go and pitch this idea for us and they'll make the argument to, to the people and hopefully sway their opinions. Uh, Tekoaite women exist all over the place. Okay? They're called political operatives. And what you do is you pay them to, to spend a lot of right, to dress up and go on TV and sell your ideas. And so what Joab does is he hires this woman who would probably work for CNN if this was present day, or Fox News for that matter. They have plenty of their own. And they would go on radio and they go on the Joe Rogan show and you go around and you're trying to convince everybody to do what you want to do. And so that's what he's hired a professional. Because, right, otherwise it's a bunch of weird stuff. Why would you hire a woman and then she's like, why are you making me dress up like somebody I'm not? Why are you making me tell the story that's not true? She's like, okay, where's my costume? What's the story? Let's do this. And then you see as she's talking to the king, she's, she's, she's very cunning in, in the way she deals with it. She's very submissive, very humble, right? And, and she, it's like one of the longest interviews with David in the entire book. And, and it just goes on and on. You're like, David, man, just give her what she wants or get her out of it. Just get her off stage. Like, let's get to the Adam Rebellion already. And you're like, no, this thing just goes on and on and on. And she, but she's cunning because he doesn't get angry. He doesn't throw her out. In fact, he says very noncommittally, because he's a ditherer, yeah, I'll take care of it. I'll send you word. Thank you. She goes, no, Lord, please, listen, can you? Mm." And then he goes a little further, a little further, and before you know it, he vows by God, by Yahweh, not to kill the murderer. And then he goes, gotcha. Look at that. Mm. Look at this poll we have on CNN. Right? We've swayed the public. Just took a I just had to keep at it. She is a very cunning woman. Now, there are several of these, actually, several times in Samuel. Um, yeah, the, hold on, let's see here. So, yeah, Adele Reinhardt is, is a scholar. She, she actually studied these three characters. There is the witch, if you recall, of Endor. And what, what does she do? You pay her money to communicate for you, but she communicates to the dead. Okay? Later in 1 Samuel uh, 28... Or there's another person, Abel, in, in 2 Samuel 20. There's going to be another woman who's hired to communicate. 
And, and they also are called white women. And, and they do the same thing. They go and they put on a stunt and try to convince people to do something. So you find these women in First and Second Samuel. They're very interesting characters. They're professional ladies who make money on rhetoric of some, in some fashion. And, and they, they repeatedly show up. And Joab wants to use one of them because why? Because why doesn't he go and get a prophet? <laughs> hey, Nathan, you know, it worked before when you went to David and told him a parable and you got him to see himself in the parable. And next thing you know, he's, he's, he's back. He's repenting of his sin and he's, he's a man of action again. Why doesn't Job go and get Nathan? Well, it tells us, right? Why did Samuel go and get the witch of Endor? Because they don't want anything to do with priests. They don't want anything to do with prophets. What they want to do is hire women to manipulate and to trick and to do things that are not, right? The witch of Endor is doing something she's not supposed to be doing. But that didn't prevent the king from going to talk to her at the time. And now you have this woman who, who the leader of the army is hiring to manipulate the king. And these kinds of, I mean, this is like the Plantagenets in England during the 14th century. This is like the War of the Roses. This is chaos. And when you read this story and you read in the intrigues of history, this is like the French court right before what happened. The whole thing burned to the ground and they chopped everybody's head off, right? This is not good, what's going on here. And at the center of it is a man sitting on a, on, on a throne doing nothing. Doing nothing. But, you know, that doesn't prevent everyone from playing him like a piano. Now... At the end, it's really also quite funny, because once she fesses up to the fact that it's Joab who is behind all of this, lo and behold, Joab is just like there. <laughs> he dismisses the woman, and, and before you know it, Joab's kneeling before Joab, where were you this whole time? You were just waiting in the wings to come on, and, and David doesn't yell at him. David doesn't say anything to him, right? If I'm the king, right, at, at, if I'm sitting at my dinner table, and I find out that two people sitting at the table are conspiring against me, you know what I, what would it be like if I were just like, oh, I guess you can go do it, guys. Right? You were conspiring against me to get ice cream and video games. Like, that would never happen, right? My kids conspiring against me. What kind of father would I be if I was like, oh, good, good job, guys. Have that ice cream and play those video games. So here's David. He's got Joab, and he's like, okay, Joab, good job. Go get him. Well played. You got me that time. What kind of man is this? What happened, right? If you're sitting, again, you're getting out the Jerusalem Times the next morning, and you read about all this stuff in the op-ed portion, you're going to think, there is no justice in the land. The ditherer allowed the rapist, right, who himself is a, is a philanderer and a murderer, is, allowed his sons to rape, one of his sons to rape his daughter, allowed his son to, and, and now the military is doing this, manipulating public opinion, how would you ever feel like, oh, you know what? I have this case that, I, that my whole life depends upon. And you know what I'm going to take it to is the righteous King David. No, you're going to be wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So David sets himself up. Now, one other interesting thing is that when she's telling this story, she does something actually, this woman could teach us a lot about how to really manipulate people. So she refers to these two sons fighting out in a field, and one kills the other. Now, does that sound like anything to you? Does that remind you of anything? Oh, way back in the start, there were two brothers fighting in the field, and one killed the other. And how, what, what, their names were Cain and Abel, and what did God do for Cain? Remember, Cain says, uh, what, what now that I've done this, what if everybody wants to kill me and get uh, honor for themselves? And God says, well, I'll mark you now. Anyone who kills you, judgment will fall upon them. She's telling this story that sounds like not just the king's story, but it sounds like the story from Genesis, because what she wants is David to be in the place of God, to mark Cain, the new Cain, and, and make sure that nothing bad happens to him. So here, this woman is using scripture to manipulate him. Because, right, if you go back and you read the story of Cain and Abel, it's not the same is Amnon and Absalom, obviously. The, they are sons killing brothers. They are murderers. But that, that's a very complicated story. Why does God mark him the way that he does? Why is he allowed to live? Right? God has not yet said, for blood, shed, we will shed blood. He hasn't yet given that order. That's later with Noah. So there's some 
discussion about what is all going on there in Genesis. But this lady who's a liar, this lady who's dressed up in a costume, who has no problem manipulating the king of the land, is actually using Genesis, is actually using the Torah as her argument. And, and that probably is why, not only memories of his own situation, but that's probably why it works. Right? Because who has a heart after God? Well, what did God do in that story? Well, he didn't kill Cain, so I guess I won't kill Absalom. I guess I want to be like God. But it's not as simple as that. And what you see here is the David who understands the word of God, who understands God, who understands God's will, who's seeking it, who's seeking justice and seeking wisdom and seeking the goodness of the land, has lost all of that. Confusion has descended upon him and reigns in his heart and his mind. Now, what happens? Absalom comes back. Okay, so dad's not having him over to watch the football games. Okay, he's not showing up having Thanksgiving dinner with him. He just sits in his own house for two years. So then let's get the intriguer back out here and see if I can get him to work out some kind of deal where I can go see the King David, Absalom thinks to himself. But no, Joab is like, you know what? I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, I'm good. Okay, palace intrigues, I've had enough. I helped your dad with the situation with Uriah. I helped you get back in the land. I'm kind of out of it. So Absalom does the only kind of, right? He does the kind of thing that a, a well-balanced, self-controlled person does. He burns Joab's field to the ground, right? I mean, I'm trying to imagine calling my neighbor because I want to borrow something from him, and he doesn't answer, and so I burn his shed down. Now, if I burned Dave's shed down, I think Dave would be over to my house pretty quick. I think, right, my neighbor is actually named David. And uh, luckily, he answers the phone. And if he ever doesn't answer the phone, I'm sure that I will not burn his shed down so that he comes and sees me. Can you imagine him looking out his back window and there's my boys? You know, I mean, <laughs> this seems like right out of the, on the surface of you, like, Absalom's a little crazy, right? This is the guy you wanted back in the land. No wonder he's gone with Solomon, because even though he's returned, he just seems a little ferocious with his long, flowing hair. But it works. Right? Joab doesn't go to the king and be like, hey, now your son's burning fields down. See, why not? What's happened? What's happened where you're going to burn someone's field down, and instead of taking you to court, instead of coming to you and, 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 and getting justice from you, Joab actually falls for it. Joab says, okay, what do you want? And, and if you read it too quickly, you miss it. Like, who does that? If my, if, if, <laughs> if my phone was ringing and it was my neighbor Dave, man, I'm not answering that. Forget that, Dave. Sorry, man. Next thing I know, I look out in the backyard and my, and my shed is burning to the ground. You know what I wouldn't do is just go over there and be like, okay, what can I do for you, Dave? Is it that you want your mower back because I'm not getting it back? What can I do? No, I'd be like, hold on, my phone worked, 911. Right? I'd get my gun. What is going on? What, is he going to burn my house down now? But Joab seems like, no, this seems like perfectly normal forms of communication. And, and, and like that tells you the status of everybody in the kingdom of Israel. This is how they're communicating with one another. And what you see, right, it's foreshadowing because Absalom's about to burn Israel to the ground. And you see his rage, right? That burning field is a sign of what he's going to do, and it's a sign of what's going on inside of him. He is a consuming fire. And Joab's like, well, this seems normal. Now, part of it is perhaps, Joab, why would you go to the king? He's not going to do anything, right? I mean, Absalom did murder somebody. A burned field seems like kind of not a big deal. Like, oh, is that all he did? And, and, and this, is, <laughs> this is where we're at. Think of, the, think of the Seattle, right? Oh, oh, all he did was spray paint all over your house to steal your car? Oh, that doesn't really seem like a big deal. Why? Because there are murderers running around. And, and, and what you see is in a land where you allow, like David has done, violent crimes reign in the streets, who cares about merchandise at Fred Meyer. Who right? Stop calling King County Police Department and reporting your stolen cars because we got bigger. It's, it's a stolen car. Get over yourself. Buy another one. Make sure it's electric. <laughs> right now, you, I, I mean, I'm white. It would, I wouldn't be able to do it. If we have the ethnic people in our church walk over to the Fred Meyer, start stealing stuff, and anybody who tried to stop me, you just call whoever's trying to stop you a racist. Boom. What do you guys want? You want some TVs? We can, we can go get all kinds of stuff. And if you don't think that this is actually happening, it's happening all over the place. Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco. Notice I didn't say a conservative city. Anyway, I don't want to get off track. 
the point is, when you allow violent crimes at the, right, just to run rampant, the lower-level crimes nobody cares about. Burning somebody's field to get them to call you back seems like perfectly normal behavior. Right? A bunch of people making a camp under the, under the freeway out there making meth seems perfectly legitimate when you got murderers running around. And, and, and so that... <laughs> there's another new one of the sun. When you have dithering leaders, this is the kind of thing that goes on. Like I said last week, right? What has more felons in it, the NBA or, or, or Congress? And because this is America, we think, oh, clearly the NBA. Not, no. Okay? Per capita, uh, the, the uh, Congress has like four times as many, five times as many felons. So who cares about your car? Buy another one, make sure it's electric. Now, what is going on here is complacency, spiritual complacency. David, in chapter 8, was at the highest point of his entire career. In chapter 7, God promises him that his kingdom will last forever and that he will have an heir forever. Chapter 8, he goes out and he wins victories, and it's the high water mark. Next thing you know, what is he doing? He's dithering. He's on this long siesta in the afternoon in a position on the roof where you can see chicks bathing. And then he's like, you know what? This is, I haven't quite gone far enough with this yet. So call that woman forth. Okay, now she's pregnant. Oh, man, how am I going to cover this up? Being a man after God's own heart. No, he's no longer pursuing the Lord, and so he murders the guy. And now, look at what, right? He, he was complacent and dithering, and now he, is, he can't help himself. He can't not dither. And it's the complacency, the complacency, the complacency. And we have to remember that the first people who read this book were not reading it in Israel. They were reading it in Syria. They were reading it in Babylon. And they were wondering, right, and this is why they compiled this history, because the people of God were sitting not in Israel, but in the dispersion, in the exile, wondering what happened to all the promises to us, to our king, that we would go on forever in the land under the Lord's gracious blessing. And, and, and the prophet's like, let me tell you a story about a king who became complacent and lost everything. Now, ladies and gentlemen who are reading this book, I, what I would like you to do is see yourselves in this book because you're sitting in Syria right, and you're sitting in Babylon because you yourselves grew complacent. That's what happened to you. What was read for us today and I said, what? The complacent women, and I think in that part there's, there's a... There's a lot metaphorically going on. He's talking to complacent women who are becoming fruitless, and the land is being emptied, and it's becoming nothing. Because complacency leads to fruitlessness, leads to being removed from the land. And what do we have now in America? Do we have any complacent women who are becoming fruitless? Is that a problem in the United States? Is fruitlessness a problem? Is complacency a problem? Willful, right? The willfully barren womb. The children that we do have, we dash them to pieces in the womb. Complacency. Now, in Deuteronomy, God made a promise to them. And God is a faithful God. And this is what the compilers of First and Second Samuel want us to understand. God is faithful to his word. And he promised Israel. He said, listen, Israel, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I'm going to make a promise to you. And it's in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. It says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He continues in chapter 28 on this promise. He's building this promise to them. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God to be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, why is it, right? We, we, we have a hard time believing God's promises of goodness and blessing. We have even more time <laughs> accepting his promises of, of discipline and destruction for disobedience. He's like, if I, really, if, I, if I obey God and follow him, he will bless me? That's hard. Right? We're encouraging people's faith. No, really, truly, follow him. He will be blessed. How much more so then when, we, when he says, listen, if you forget me, I will forget you. And you're like, well, that's, I don't know. Does he keep his promises? And so they compiled this history to tell everyone, yes, he keeps his promises. 
You forgot him. And you, so you know what he did? He forgot you. You turned your back on him, so he turned his back on you. You built a beautiful land, just like he said you would do, and you were nothing but fruitful. And then what you did is you used all that fruitfulness on your own lusts and passions and no gods. And so what he did was he took it from you. Because why would he continue to give it to you if what you're going to do with it is curse him and disobey him and bring filth to the land? Deuteronomy 28.36 The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And so there they sit in Syria and Babylon reading for Samuel saying, oh, this is what happened. Complacency. The king became complacent and all hell broke loose. And, and, and though God in, right, endured Endured, 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 endured. We read in Isaiah, we read in Amos, that complacency ruled our hearts and minds as the people of God, and so God took everything away from us. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Amos. Amos chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion... Actually, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm just going to edit this a little bit. I'm not going to take anything out of it. I'm just going to change it just a little bit to kind of change our perspective. Woe to those who are at ease in the United States. To those who feel secure on the mountain of Washington, D.C. The notable men, the first of the nations, to whom the house of the United States has come. Now pass over to Canada and see. And there go over to Russia and take a look. Then go down to Iran. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of the United States. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Now, I have, to, I have to, during COVID, was it brothels that they shut down? No. What did they shut down? The pot shops? No, what did they shut down? Did they shut down Home Depot? Did they shut down Amazon? I'm confused. Who did they shut down? Why was it that churches, right? Did they even, <laughs> there was a time you could even go to a Husky football game and not go to church. You could go to concerts, right? You could get your dope, and you could go home. It's better that you stay home. And you get on your Xbox, and you have fellowship through that. That's fine. Go for it. But what was it that they closed first? Why? And did we go along with it? Or did we dither? Now, I'm not talking us. I know you guys are like, come on, Mikey. You told me not to come. There's some of you even who are like, I was there every time. Even when you told me not to come, I was there. Like, okay, you got me. I'm not just talking about us, though. I'm talking about the church in the United States. We're dithering people, and we're ruled over by ditherers. Right? What was given to us? If you go back and you read the Bill of Rights, it's not a Christian document. I'm just going to be very clear. But it's within, at least, a tradition that believes in a God, because rights come from what? God, it says. Now, you go back to those traditions. Now, did we build on that a beautiful and glorious nation for the Lord God, right? Or, or, or right in the beginning, did we allow the lusts of our flesh to begin, right, complacency about slavery, complacency about, what, workers and, and the hours they were working and children labor laws. You go back, what were we complacent about? Were we complacent about the Native Americans? And you see, just like in David's household, the destruction of our house started in the very beginning because we, we, we became complacent about things. We dithered about things. And those things have risen up, and they are like a sword devouring our house. Complacency. Now, there are four signs of complacency. 
because we can talk about Joe Biden and the fact that he couldn't find a coherent sentence with a flashlight midday, but I don't really want to talk about him anymore. I think I've made my point. I would like to talk about you, and I would like to talk about whether you are complacent, whether you are a ditherer, whether you are somebody who stands in the doorway and you won't go out and you won't come in, right? You're somebody who you're not really warm, you're not really cold, you're just sort of there. Are you one of those people? Well, here are some signs. Number one, you view yourself higher than what God determines to be true. Right? You think of yourself as something more than what God actually says you are. In other words, you think that you are doing okay spiritually when in fact you are not. We compare ourselves with others or even with our past failures and we see success. Right? If you look next to you, you probably see success in yourself. If you look at you from five years ago, most of you will see success. But if we're always looking at shadows, right, our light seems pretty bright. But what happens when you look up at the sun, as Calvin says? Oh, you're blinded, right? When you look at the actual standard, Jesus Christ, you're like, I am nothing, and I am no one, and I'm going nowhere, and it's, I, I'm not who I think I am, and it's worse than I realize. Right? Scripture is very clear about who and what we are apart from Jesus Christ. So if you think you're, you got it, yay! I would sit down with your Bible, and I would read Romans. I would sit down with your Bible, and I would read Deuteronomy. I would sit down with your Bible, and I would consider the things of God that you've been neglecting. Number two, you live in an attitude of self-sufficiency, right? We can, you can go down to Wells Fargo and show me how you are good, right? Let's go down to Wells Fargo. I will get my account balance, and I will show you that everything is peachy keen, okay? We'll, I'll go to my house. I'll see, look, I have no trouble getting anywhere I want. I got two cars, right? I got multiple televisions, you open the cupboard, you're like, look, I got this, right? I'm not in need. And where did all of that stuff come from? <laughs> you're a, right? you, you grew up in a good home with good parents, with good opportunities, and, and right? you don't know want. They didn't know want. And I like to talk about the fact that I grew up eating government cheese. But you know what I grew up eating? Government cheese. You know why? Because the government gave it to us. You know what I didn't do is growing up in a world not knowing what cheese is. So even if you had sort of difficult seasons in your life, we are all of us the richest, most ridiculously rich people ever in the history of the world. And we think that all that money is in Wells Fargo because I put in my 9 to 5, 40-hour a week job, and I did it. Look at this house I bought. Look at these cars I drive. Look at how fantastic I am. Right? I did my own hair. Wait, what? No, truly. You look at your mirror and you're just like, man, I have, I have really accomplished something with the little bit given to me. Number three, we are comfortable in the culture in which we live. You know, I, I honestly, I was recently talking to somebody about what it was like discipling people in your church. And you're like, well, you kind of got all kinds of things. You got older people who, who have grandkids now and they have, you have people whose kids have gone astray and you're dealing with it all the way down to where you have people who are still watching Game of Thrones. So, I mean, as far as ministry and discipleship goes, I have like a, a sliding scale of issues. And, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because when, when the people who are supposed to have a distinct culture that's not of the world, and you can't tell the difference between them and my neighbor who doesn't go to church, I think that you have a serious problem. I think that you have complacency. So if you sitting here culturally are not that different from the people sitting at home, we have a problem, right? You deserve Joe Biden. We all do, if that is what we have going on. If we are not a distinct culture, a distinct educational system, a distinct people. Number four, we are spiritually satisfied without real spiritual awareness. (laughs) Now, what does that even mean? What is real spiritual awareness? What is it? Do you have it? Do you recognize it? Is it something you feel? Is it something you believe? Is it something you know? This is one of those times I'm not, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm asking the questions. Do you have real spiritual awareness? Is the Holy Spirit a person that you, that you are in contact with? Let's just ask that question. Because what happens is that God pours out his blessings in in ways that we can hardly imagine. And we love them, and we forget him. 
We look at all the stuff that he provides, and we forget the provider. We look at all the things he gives, and we forget the giver. We look at all the gifts, and we forget the gift giver, the one who's there giving us all of these things. And we grow complacent. We grow complacent about our wives and husbands. We grow complacent about our children. We grow grow complacent about our calling. We grow complacent about our jobs. We We grow complacent about the neighbor, right? Now, forget the neighbor who burns your barn down or your shed down to get your attention. Do you have neighbors whose houses are on fire because they are a hot mess? Are there people in this church who desperately need fellowship, who desperately need someone to stand there and hold their hand and pray with them? Now, I know that you have a pastor, right, who has people over to his house who's doing the work of ministry, right? And and, and does that ever cause you to be complacent about yourselves doing the work of ministry? I remember sitting in those seats. I remember having a guy, and I thought, you know what? He covers – sorry, you're here. This is super random. (laughs) He covers a multitude of sins, I used to think to myself. Thank goodness he's there to, to selflessly give away his house every Sunday, and it's really nice to get invited. Because glory and blessing and grace, right, it makes you complacent. And no one in the history of the world, I would argue, has received as much glory and grace as the, as the people living right now in the United States. And we, right, so the good men won't get up from table. The good men won't get up from the computer screen. The good men won't, right, They're, they won't get out of the Barca lounger. And so good men are not doing good things, and so bad men are doing bad things. And our wives are suffering, and our children are suffering, and our culture is suffering, and people who we don't know are suffering. Because there is a failure of nerve. There is a failure of will. There is a failure of zeal. Don't be a ditherer. Look at this story and see what David is doing and see what he's not doing and see how he's being used and consider the fact that there are things you are supposed to be doing that you are not doing. There are things that you are doing that you should not be doing. There are opportunities you are missing. And and is that an opportunity for God to, again, show you his goodness, to show you his kindness, to show you his mercy and his long-suffering? Yes, 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 and yes. Right? If you want to, to bring the dithering tower of, I don't even know what, a shotgun of confusion, right? It's just a shotgun blast of nonsense every day on the TV of what's going on. If you want the bad men to stop doing bad things, be a good man and do good things. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your ministry and your goodness to us, your grace and your kindness. I pray, God, that as we go from here, we would consider uh, whether we are ourselves complacent, how we are contributing, Lord, to the um, malaise, both spiritually and morally in this country and in our homes and in our communities. I pray, God, that you would uh, show us the sins that we ought to repent of, that you would teach us to cry out to you, that you would teach us to pray, that you would, Lord, put a burden upon our hearts to... um, to draw nearer to you in your word and in prayer and in fellowship with one another. I pray, God, that you would um, not turn your face from us and not turn us over to further judgment, but bring revival and renewal to us and to this land. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.